Were you traumatized as a child by watching Unsolved Mysteries? Do you like to judge facial hair? <laughs> Guess what? We have a podcast for you. Can you believe it? It's called Perhaps It's You. And it is an unofficial Unsolved Mysteries rewatch podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Samantha. I'm Liz. We're two cool mystery ants, not really, <laughs> watch an episode of Unsolved Mysteries each week and tell you about it. We update you if any of the mysteries have been solved. We rate the episode on a scale of Robert Stacks. We can give episodes a possible five out of five Robert Stacks, although it rarely happens. Very rarely. We also complain about what everyone is wearing. And it doesn't really matter if you know anything about Unsolved Mysteries or not. You should tune in because it's the number one podcast on iTunes. Yeah, you can find us on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, most podcast platforms. You can also check out our website, perhapsitsyou.com, or find us on the social medias at Perhaps It's You. And get out there and solve some mysteries, bitches! Yeah! <laughs> Arizona, 1931. At 66 years of age, Adolf Ruth had seen his fair share of adventure. As a prospector, and a real mountain man at that, he had searched for years for the legendary Pegleg Mine in California. A lost treasure for another time, perhaps. Unfortunately, age had caught up to him. Instead of gold nuggets, he returned back home with a broken leg that required several pins and the use of a cane. In addition to living large and dangerously, Ruth had made time to raise a family, which included his son, a successful lawyer named Erwin. In 1912, Erwin came to the aid of a gentleman named Pedro Gonzalez, who had gotten into a little bit of legal trouble. Gonzalez claimed to be a descendant, on his mother's side, of the local Peralta family, who, it was rumored, had come into wealth almost overnight under mysterious circumstances. As thanks for his help, Gonzalez told Erwin Ruth the secret behind his family fortune. Many years ago, they had come upon a hidden mine, known only to their clan, but that had unfortunately gone missing over the decades. He then gave Erwin a series of old, dusty maps that reportedly show the whereabouts of what was known as the Lost Dutchman's Mine. Erwin, being a man of law, found the maps nothing more than fantasy, and passed them on to his more eager, adventurous father. Adolf, which, by the way, was a name that was just a few years away from becoming very unpopular to give to your baby, decided to take the maps as a challenge. Perhaps Ruth's pride had been damaged, along with his leg, that is, from his failures in California. Maybe he had something to prove. So in June of 1931, Ruth set off for the Superstition Mountains, a range that was known to live up to its reputation. He didn't come back. With law enforcement close at hand, Erwin kicked off the search for his father. The hunt turned up a ranch owner named Tex Barkley, who had equipped Adolf Ruth with provisions and also told him that his search was incredibly dangerous, especially for a disabled man in his upper 60s. Far from being deterred, Adolf failed to heed these warnings and set off into the gorge. Months passed without any sign of Adolf. Then, in December of that year, the search turned up something that only raised more questions than answers. A skull, found in the canyons of the mountains. An anthropologist was called in, and using dental records and photographs of Adolf Ruth, came to the tragic and disturbing conclusion that the skull belonged to the lost outdoorsman. But then, where was the rest of him? 
of concern was what exactly had been done to the skull, which had not only been severed, but contained entrance and exit holes at the front and the back. Investigators determined that Adolf Ruth had been shot via shotgun blast at point-blank range. A month later, the headless remains of Adolf Ruth were discovered just yards away from where the skull had been located. Intact were his belongings, a pistol that had not been fired, and other personal effects. Mysteriously, the map supposedly leading to the mines was absent. Only a note, discovered in Ruth's checkbook, contained any clues to what may have happened. It said that Ruth had actually managed to discover the location of the mine, and his last words were the Latin, Veni Vidi Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. No criminal investigation followed, much to the anger of Erwin and his family. Investigators ruled that Adolf had committed suicide by gunfire, despite the fact that his gun had never been discharged. In the end, Adolf Ruth became a victim of the notorious Lost Dutchman's Mine and its reputable curse. He would not be the last. Historically speaking, Arizona has served as the ancestral home of the Yavapai and Apache Indians, as well as other tribes and clans. It was the Apache who first resided in the vicinity of the Superstition Mountains, a collection of jagged cliffs and mesas, and a dry, arid, and truly unforgiving landscape. Apache tradition dictates that the mountains call home to a deep cavern from which all life originated, and that winds from the underworld, as well as other things perhaps, continue to blow from this portal to this day. Lost Dutchman Mine lore frequently mentions that the superstitions, and perhaps even the missing mine itself, were the territory of a vengeful thunder god, another reason why the mountains were to be avoided. While the Apache do believe in a contingency of good and harmful spirits, which may include various weather or thunder deities, I could find no source of a specifically named thunder god in question during my research. While I hesitate to chalk this up as a case of white people distorting indigenous belief systems to bolster a tall tale, I'll leave that for the audience to decide, as well as offer up corrections if they may have them. The first outsiders to encroach on this established territory were the Spanish conquistadors, led by Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, who, much like Adolf Ruth, was already in search of legendary gold before the lost mine was even on his radar. Specifically, Coronado was trying to hunt down one of the seven golden cities of Cibola, which is something I will also probably cover in a future episode. But to give some brief context, big city, lots of gold, you know how those conquistadors do. 
1540, Coronado established contact with the Apache, or so the legend goes, and they informed him that, yeah, there's a damn lot of gold in these hills, and no, you're never gonna get it. This was the first mention of the so-called Thunder God, who was also apparently very protective over this mysterious gold and would kill anybody who got too close. Since this is one of those lost treasures where it's hard to nail down what's history and what's myth, we're gonna have to take everything hereafter with an iota of salt. Legend says that the Apache's warning failed to deter the Spanish, who in typical horror movie fashion, marched right into the mountains and began to vanish as quickly as camp counselors in a slasher flick. So rampant were these disappearances that it was said that if a man simply walked out of eyeshot of his companions, he was never seen again. Those who did manage to resurface did so minus their heads, leaving behind a trail of mutilated corpses and not much to suggest who, or what, was behind their demise. Those who survived the forbidden ridges and cliffs refused to go back, and so Coronado named the range the Superstition Mountains. Or, you know, so they say. Both folklorists and enthusiasts cautioned that there were many disparate legends of hidden mines and caches of gold that may have, through repeated tellings, merged together into the story we know today. But before the Dutchman in question, there was a prominent family of ranchers, the Peraltas. Inspired by the tales of Coronado searching for gold in the hills, and clearly not put off by all of those unexplained decapitations, it was Don Miguel Peralta who discovered a vein of gold somewhere in the mountains in 1845. He marked the location of the mine via a nearby naturally occurring spire, which he thought kinda looked like a sombrero, and so he called his gold cache the Sombrero Mine, which sounds like the name of a bar that serves amazing $5 margaritas and not cursed gold, but I digress. Today, the distinct rock formation, which totally does look like a sombrero, is referred to as Weaver's Needle, named for the white settler Pauline Weaver. In 1848, after returning with a cadre of Mexican workers to mine and extract the discovered gold, Peralta found that the Apache were, understandably, not too pleased that the Spanish had come back to ransack their homeland. Depending who you ask, Peralta either ignored their threats and began to ship gold back to his home city of Sonora, or he was never able to get a foothold on the mine again. Either way, it said Peralta drew up some maps leading to the mine and then did his best to conceal the location from any would-be opportunists. The next day, he planned to ride out with his men back to Mexico with all the gold he could carry. But he never made it. A battalion of Apache warriors attacked Peralta's entourage and killed the lot of them. In the process, they scattered the caravan's horses and burros, still saddled with bags of gold, who fled into the recesses of the canyons. Years later, in 1914, a gentleman named C.H. Silverlock appeared in Arizona's capital city of Phoenix with a rotting leather bag containing over $18,000 worth of unrefined gold. The man said he discovered the bag while crossing the mountains, having found it alongside the bones of what appeared to be a horse or a donkey. As for the maps drawn up by Peralta, the story goes that those ended up with none other than Pedro Gonzalez, a descendant of Don Miguel, who passed them on to the Ruth family, thus perpetuating the so-called curse. 
But not everybody who went looking for the mine ended up meeting a grim fate. Like any good curse, which from a folkloric standpoint is usually an enchantment caused by human moral failing, there are ways to go about circumventing disaster. One such fortunate soul was Dr. Abraham Thorne, a white gentleman from Illinois who had a decidedly more progressive outlook on indigenous Americans than most of his peers. History is not clear on what compelled Thorne to become so woke, as the kids say, but he had always maintained the goal of becoming a doctor specifically for disenfranchised Native Americans on the western frontier. In 1865, he became an army doctor stationed at Fort McDowell in the region of the superstitions. After President Abraham Lincoln ordered the establishment of an Indian reservation near the fort, Thorne set out providing medical care for the local Apache. He was able to earn the trust and respect of the tribal elders by caring for the sick, the children, and the elderly. In 1870, the tribal leaders came together and offered Dr. Thorne a token of thanks for being pretty much the only white person they ever met who hadn't actively tried to kill or colonize them. In order to receive this reward, however, he would have to be blindfolded and led to a secret location. Now obviously Thorne trusted the village elders, and so he followed their command and was taken on a 20-mile journey, by horseback into the mountains. When the blindfold or gunny sack was lifted, Dr. Thorne discovered he had been led into an unfamiliar canyon. He noted a strange rock formation a mile to the south from where he stood, and this was most likely Weaver's Needle. Though Thorne was not explicitly taken to the fabled mine itself, what the good doctor found waiting for him against the canyon wall was a pile of gold nuggets. He was instructed to take as much as he could carry. In total, the grateful Thorne walked away with over $6,000 in gold. With inflation, today that would be almost $110,000. So I bet you're asking right about now. Who is this lost Dutchman? Well, it's the mine that actually got lost, and not the Dutchman, who turns out was a German. Confused? Back in the day, Dutch was the catch-all term from people from Germany, a corruption of the word Deutsch, as in Deutschland. And the Deutsch in question was a fellow named Jacob Waltz, who migrated to America in 1845 with the desire to strike it rich. Working and then moving from New York to North Carolina, Mississippi, California, and Nevada, Jacob Waltz finally landed in Arizona in 1868. But after accumulating years of prospecting, Waltz didn't exactly have much to show for his efforts. Now into his 50s, Waltz decided to give up the old pickaxe and pan and settle down on a homestead in the Rio Satillo Valley, where he made friends with the locals, including the Apache, who had taken to calling him Snowbeard. And it's at this point in the story that Jacob Waltz's fate takes several different forks in the road, depending on which version of the story you're following. What we do know is that Jacob Waltz had previously been working in the established vulture mine shortly before he vanished, only to suddenly reappear in Phoenix, throwing around unusual amounts of high-quality gold. The most fanciful interpretation behind Waltz's sudden fortune is that Jacob Waltz saved the life of a hapless gentleman who'd done gone and found himself in the middle of a knife fight. That man turned out to be Don Miguel Peralta, 
a descendant of the original Don Miguel. He wasn't like an immortal or something, who had retained the knowledge of his family's hidden gold mine. He provided Jacob Waltz with knowledge of its whereabouts. And soon after, Jacob Waltz began popping into town buying rounds at the local bar. Naturally, such a colorful personality attracted a lot of gossip and intrigue. And it sounds like Mr. Waltz rather enjoyed capitalizing on his mystery. He never disclosed the location of this fabled mine, but he was fond of giving different accounts to different people of how he came into possession of so much gold. That didn't stop opportunists from trying to tail him into the mountains in hopes of uncovering his expensive secret. All attempts failed, either because Waltz was very good at losing his pursuers, or because the men simply disappeared while tracking him. In fact, this was the fate that befell Jacob Waltz's own partner in crime, a fellow prospector by the name of Jacob Weiser. You can see how things get pretty confusing in the story with the similar names. One day, Weiser went into the mountains and never came back. Those in town laid his death at the hands of the Apaches. In 1891, an aging Jacob Waltz struck up a friendship with a Mexican widow and bakery owner named Yulia Elena Tomas. Tomas had initially given Waltz room and boarding at her house, but it was only a matter of time before the two fell in love. A grateful and smitten Waltz decided at last that he would reveal the secret of this seemingly endless gold supply and offered to take Yulia to his mine once the spring arrived and made it safer to travel into the mountains. Unfortunately, whether it was the curse or just poor timing, Jacob Waltz died on October 25th, 1891. If Yulia held any doubts about her lover's claim to fortune, those questions were immediately put to rest when she discovered a sack of gold ore underneath Waltz's deathbed. In one account, Waltz bequeathed the gold to both her and some longtime companions, and following appraisal of the gold nuggets, it's discovered that they're extremely high grade and thus very valuable. Not long after Waltz's death, Yulia was besieged by inquiries from those in town who were eager to discover the secret behind the Dutchman's fortune. Whether to simply shut them up or make a little money of her own, Yulia began to sell curious adventurers maps based on the little information she had gleaned from Waltz before he died. Or maybe she just like made them up, I don't know. The hunt for the lost Dutchman's mind became something of a local pastime and legend, but it wouldn't be till Adolf Ruth died looking for the lost treasure that the story entered the national consciousness. Now, we're almost done covering the general background, but believe it or not, there is one final peculiar footnote in this story. About 10 years after Adolf Ruth made his final journey, a hiker traveling through the Superstition Mountains tripped over a rock that had been concealing four carved tablets. These stones contained cryptic imagery and crude maps with an engraved heart in the center bearing the date 1847, the year before the massacre of Don Miguel Peralta and his men at the hands of the Apache. These Peralta stones, as they came to be known, were thought to be yet another clue in the hunt for the lost Dutchman's mine, providing a valuable resource for many treasure hunters. But there's two major problems with the stones, which can be seen by appointment, by the way, at the Superstition Mountain Historical Society. 
For one, testing on the tablets indicated that they were carved with tools that just didn't exist in 1847. And two, the Peralta family may have never existed to begin with, at least as we know them from legend, making the stones a forgery. In the stories, the Peraltas are a cattle ranching family from Sonora, Mexico. That surname carries a reputation, as it was the name of the Spanish governor of New Mexico in the 1600s, Pedro de Peralta. But there are no documents or historical records proving that an established Peralta family had a ranch in the superstition region at the end of the 19th century. A Peralta family did, however, own a mine in Valencia, California, around that same point in time. When the mines dried up, the patriarch of the Peralta family tried to swindle a land grant out of an Arizona doctor, who ended up with nothing, while the Peraltas pocketed his cash. Their notoriety may have provided some of the inspiration for the tale. As for the good Dr. Thorne being rewarded a cache of gold for his service to the Apache, well, records do show that a Dr. Thorne did exist in New Mexico around the end of the 1800s, and this Dr. Thorne claimed to have discovered a gold vein while in the brief captivity of the Navajo, or Dine. Folklorists now believe that his story, which was passed on to a group of soldiers from the U.S. Army, was later incorporated into the wider Lost Dutchman Mine mythology. One adjacent account even describes a trio of soldiers going off to search for the gold only to, you guessed it, vanish in the process. Another story simply states that aside from a fruitless attempt to discover the whereabouts, they were, they were fine. That brings us to the eponymous Dutchman, who, surprise, did in fact exist. The most likely candidate was a man from Württemberg, Germany, whose arrival in America roughly coincides with the timelines of the Waltz of Legend. But depending on who you ask, the real-life Jacob Waltz might not have been just another lucky prospector who chanced upon a great find. He may have been a thief, and a murderous one at that. Waltz and his pal Weiser didn't just leave the Vulture mine where they had been employed. They had been dismissed after it was discovered they had been pocketing the gold for themselves. The somewhat anticlimactic and rational explanation for Waltz's fabled mine was that there was no mine at all, and that the Dutchman in question had just been spending the gold he'd stolen from his previous employer. Others argue that the ore Waltz had brought into Phoenix was of too high a quality, and unlikely to have come from an established mine like Vulture. One story tells of Waltz and Weiser coming upon two miners and then killing the men, either using the cover story of having mistaken them for Indians, or because they were just greedy jerks. This story would lend credence to the mysterious fate of Jacob Weiser, said to have been killed by the Apache. To those who subscribe to the belief that Jacob Waltz was a rotten lowlife, they believe he actually murdered his partner to protect his hoard. And also because, you know, more gold for him. A more pragmatic account that absolves Waltz of murder, at least, was that he had been working at the vulture mine, or another operation, and had absconded with a bag of gold in the middle of the night. After relocating to Phoenix, he hid his supply in a secret cache in the Superstition Mountains, which he would periodically revisit when he needed funds. If so, this means that, well, there might actually be a supply of gold still lurking up there. Maybe. Probably not. 
ultimately, it sounds like the Lost Dutchman's Mine is just a culmination of a bunch of separate legends that somehow coalesce together in the retellings over the years. And we do know that there are a few theories out there about what the Lost Dutchman's Mine, if it does exist, is or isn't. But what about the curse? Regardless of what you believe, one can't deny that there have been a lot of unusual deaths surrounding the Superstition Mountains over the years, specifically the deaths of those who go in search of the fabled mine. Some of these accounts are verifiable, and yet others may be additions to the overall mystique. Before Adolf Ruth, it's said that two soldiers came upon one of the bags of gold that the Peralta caravan had abandoned during the escape from the Apaches. The satchel was discovered near what was described as a hastily abandoned cave opening or mine. The soldiers enlisted the help of a local miner to come back to the location and excavate. The miner paid them $700 for the gold, sold them the supplies, and then never heard from them again. Two weeks later, a search party uncovered the nude body of one of the soldiers, who had apparently died from a gunshot wound to the head. His companion was found elsewhere the next day in a similar state. A prospector named Joe Deering was not put off by this story, and he went in search of the mine himself almost a year later. He then came back to town with some astounding news. He'd found it, and described the mine as a pit opening that had been haphazardly filled in with rocks. He then set about working up the local Silver King mine to accumulate funds to launch his own excavation. About a week later, he was killed in a cave-in, and the whereabouts of the hidden mine died with him. Of course, we have to remember, the Peraltas may not have existed to begin with, so it's dubious whether these two incidents actually happened. Over the following years into the early part of the 20th century, an eerie pattern emerged of those who went looking for the lost gold and never returned. Those who managed to come back alive sometimes did so having gone mad. If two or more people went into the mountains together in search of the mine, they would often be overcome with a sudden urge to kill their partners. Small bags of gold ore were occasionally found on the bodies of those who had gone into the mountains, with very little explanation as to where the unfortunate souls had discovered their loot. Most of the time, the discovered cause of death was that these people had been shot. Other bodies were found with their heads missing, as was the case with adventurer James A. Carvey, who had tried to find the mine by use of a helicopter. He landed near Weaver's Needle and went into the gorge. When he didn't come back, a search party went after him and discovered his headless remains. His skull was then found 30 feet away. Just as strange were the accounts of the survivors, those who had gone in search of the Lost Dutchman's Mine or those who were simply hiking the superstitions. They reported attacks from mysterious, unseen individuals who would throw rocks at them, or even try and shoot them at a distance. And this was well after the Apache had resided in the area. So, who was committing these violent assaults, and why? Consensus was that these mysterious people, if they were human, that is, were protecting something. These unexplained deaths continued into the 50s, and in 1984, the body of a well-known prospector named Wade Guzzler was found not far off from Weaver's Needle. Authorities searched his backpack and were shocked to find a supply of rich gold ore that, when tested, matched up with the records of the same type of gold that Waltz had left his beloved Julia Tomas. The cause of Guzzler's death? 
gunshot. In 2009, a hotel worker named Jesse Capen went off in search of the lost Dutchman's mine, having been an enthusiast for several years. His car was discovered abandoned with no sign of Capen anywhere close by. And then in 2012, his body was found lodged in a crevice. Around the same time, three hikers from Utah, Curtis Merworth, Ardeen Charles, and Malcolm Meeks also vanished looking for the mine. Not long after they disappeared, an individual turned in a note they had discovered in a bottle floating in the nearby Salt River. The writer of the note claimed to have discovered the lost Dutchman's mine, but had become trapped in the process. He provided directions to his whereabouts, but search parties found no trace of the writer or the mine itself. Thus, the note was deemed a hoax. But not long after, remains of three bodies were discovered. These were believed to be Merworth, Charles, and Meeks. So, I know what you're probably thinking right about now. What the f***, right? Okay, so the reality is that it doesn't take a curse to kill you when you're in the Superstition Mountains. Even the most well-equipped hikers have gotten lost due to the magnetic rocks in the area distorting their compasses. And we all know that erratic compasses are part and parcel with stories about encounters with the supernatural. This no doubt paints a creepy picture of the mountains. Cellular surface is almost non-existent in the higher elevations, and there are many steep drops and hidden crevices that you could easily fall into if you're not careful or an experienced climber. Rugged terrain and the allure of lost treasure often blinds people to the very real threat of the wilderness. But this doesn't explain the fact that, for almost a century or more, decapitated bodies of individuals who got lost in the superstitions kept turning up. Granted, it's unlikely that a thunder god would be packing heat, but hey, who am I to judge? The fact is that some of these stories are hard to verify without primary sources, such as obituaries or news articles. One account concerning the unfortunate James A. Ward, who had tried to find the mine via helicopter, only mentions that he went missing. It makes no mention of ever recovering his body, head or no. Is it possible, then, that the legend of the lost Dutchman's mine is so strong that it's blurred fact and fiction far longer than we might care to admit? Or is there really a dedicated serial killer stalking the Superstition Mountains, someone who's just never been caught? There are others out there who believe that the lost mine may have never been lost at all, and that someone, be they Peralta, Apache, or Waltz, has continued to uphold a bloody tradition of keeping the mine a secret at all costs. Whatever the case may be, I leave listeners with one final word of warning. If you go in search of the lost Dutchman's mine, don't go alone. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. If you like what you heard and want to give me some internet gold, you can leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. We also have a Patreon, which you can find at the website at relic.blueberry.net, and I promise there will be some new content there soon. Next time, he was one of the most feared conquerors of his time, and even to this day, the name Attila the Hun conjures up a merciless and bloodthirsty ruler. But history shows us that Attila was a complicated figure, especially when it came to his death and burial. Where is the infamous ruler's burial place? What treasures might be lurking inside, and do we really want to go looking for them? The adventure continues. Thank you.
Arizona, 1931. Oh my gosh, why do I sound so weird? <clears throat> Far from deterred, Adolf failed to heed his warnings. It said, <clears throat> Both folklorists and enthusiasts cautioned that there were many disparate legends of hidden mines and cash... Cashes? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Through repeated... <laughs> Through repeated, through repeated, repeated, there was a prominent family member inspired by the tales of Coronado searching. Oh, I got a burp. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Boros, 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 Boros. Hello, all you curious creatures out there. I'm Amber A. And I'm Andrew McKay, and welcome into The Portal, a place where we discuss all things lost, unexplained, and straight-up strange. Ancient lost history, cryptozoology, worldwide myths and legends are all things to expect when you dive into The Portal. Like the time we covered the strange case of giant humanoid swimmers in Siberia's Lake Baikal. Or the terrifying legend of the Braxton County Monster, stalked the hills of West Virginia. Oh, and don't forget about the enduring mystery of Egypt's lost underworld. We dig it all, so join us every week for a brand new adventure into some of the world's lesser-known unexplained phenomena, cryptic creatures, and historical mysteries. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And of course, at intotheportal.com, your gateway to the bazaar. So come join us. The only question is, will you peer into the portal?